Welcome to the Chasing Passion Podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week, I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing it. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. This week's guest is Scott Young. Scott is a lifelong learner, author and an online entrepreneur. He has undertaken self-education projects such as learning the entire MIT's computer science curriculum within 12 months, learning four languages in one year, along with many other projects he has done in the past. He has recently published his book Ultra Learning, which is a Wall Street Journal and a national bestseller. Within the book, you will find the nine principles that have helped them learn difficult and seemingly impossible skills within such a short period of time, quickly and effectively with near perfect comprehension. So if you're a student, want to excel within your career, or just learn a new skill or subject, this book is definitely for you. He runs a website, scotthyung.com, where he has published thousands of articles on learning and the lessons he has accumulated over the years. In this episode, some of the things we discuss are his best tip to learn a new language within three months, is there a difference in comprehension between audiobooks and physical books, what does the day-to-day life as an author and entrepreneur actually look like, along with many other super interesting topics. I really hope you enjoy this episode and gain some valuable insight that you can use within your own life. And without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Scott, welcome to the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is, who is Scott Young? Uh, What is your background? Well, Scott Young is me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I am. uh, So I've been writing on a blog for about, oh, but 13 years. And one of the major topics I've been writing about has been learning. And so the way that maybe some of you maybe have heard of me is from doing these big learning projects such as the MIT challenge, trying to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months, uh, passing the final exams, and doing the programming projects, or projects like the year without English, where I went with a friend and we learned four languages in a year, um, Spanish in Spain, Portuguese in Brazil, Mandarin in China, and Korean in South Korea, uh, and various things like that. So I've, uh, that's sort of what I've been doing. And most recently, I published a book called Ultra Learning, which is um, now a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And it is documenting not only the approach that I've used to learn things more effectively, but also the approach used by many fascinating people that you maybe haven't heard of before, learning all sorts of skills from languages to public speaking, to starting businesses, to making video games, to uh, winning Scrabble tournaments. Hmm. Okay. And what actually made you write the book in the first place? So this book has been sort of the book that I've wanted to write for the last 10 years, pretty much. And it's basically because I think when most people think about learning, they think about school. Mm. So you think about, okay, how do I get through, you know, high school or university? How do I pass my exams? How do I get good grades? And although I do think that that's often very important, particularly if you are a student, most of us aren't students. And maybe even the people listening to this are not necessarily students right now. And so the reason that I was very interested in this book is because when I talk to people about learning, if they're not in school, a very common reaction is, oh, well, you know, That's something that I was doing back then, but I don't have to do any of that now. And I almost want to scream when I hear this because you are learning constantly. This is what your brain does. This is the basic function of your life is to learn new things and to integrate those experiences into being a more effective person. And so understanding the learning process, I think, outside of just being able to pass tests and and being able to get good grades, I think is so important. And yet it's surprisingly understudied. It's something that people don't talk a lot about. And so I wanted to write a book that really documented people who have done this fantastically well, and then combine that with some of the cognitive science that we know about how learning works, so that you can also apply that to learn things better in your own life. Hmm. And were you actually always just curious about learning? Or like, um, did you have any other interests? Like, I'm curious to know, what kind of person were you in school? Or just when you were younger in general? Yeah, so I I think I've always been a curious person, uh, even as a kid. So I don't think it's ever been the case that I was, you know, staunchly against learning. And then I had some, you know, uh, born again moment where I I saw the light. I've always been interested in things. But I think the sort of path that you know, now my entire life is about learning has been sort of an interesting one. And then that was started when I was in school. So started when, you know, I was like, like you or like a lot of people who, 
you know, when you have to be able to pass tests and when you have to do this, learning is obviously just important because that's what you're doing most of the day. And so I started getting involved in this when I started hearing about people learning a bit more efficiently, effective learning methods, effective studying tactics. And then that sort of morphed after I left school into a broader interest of realizing that learning impacts so much of what we do beyond just being able to, you know, get degrees and stuff. But it is also something that, you know, uh, a lot of these details of how to learn are just not that well known. Hmm. And could you just tell us some of the previous ultra learning projects that you did? So MIT Challenge is one. Uh, could you just explain some of the other ones you did? Yeah, so the one uh, one of the ones that I mentioned uh, just previously was that, that Year Without English project that I did with a friend where we learned the four languages. Uh, I've also done some projects to learn uh, art. I did a portrait drawing challenge and quantum mechanics and a few other little things. Hmm. And what are your actually, what are your next projects that you're thinking of uh, doing? So I don't have anything planned or publicly announced for the moment. I, I always have more things I want to learn than I have time. And I would say that I'm always learning things even outside of these big projects. So it's not to say that these, you know, these handful of things are the only things that I've ever learned. They're usually just the only things that I've gone to the trouble of making a big documented public effort out of it, because that itself is is quite a bit of work. And so I usually take those with a little bit more seriousness and I usually work harder on framing them in a way that other people understand. But if we're just talking about my regular life, I mean, one of the things is since I went to China as part of that language learning project, continuing to learn Chinese has been sort of a continuous effort of mine for the last five years. So uh, that's sort of an ongoing project. I write about it a little bit, but not very often just because, you know, the it's not something that like there's this intense and very clear before and after uh, picture I'm trying to create. But clearly learning to do that well is something that I care about. And then there's also things that I care about. Uh, you know, I just recently wrote on my blog, there's an article about uh, getting better at writing because that's what I do for a living now is I write. And so understanding the process of getting better at that is something that I also care about. Hmm. And like you said, you spoke while well, you did learn a lot of languages. Uh, like how many languages would you be, would you be fluent at the moment? Fluency is a word that I really hesitate to use because people mean very different things when right. they mean fluency. So and so I, I'm not, I'm very hesitant for that just because I feel like for a lot of people, the word fluent means perfection. And I'm not perfect in any of my languages. All of my languages would be worse than English. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And that is not only true for me, that's true for virtually everyone on the planet. There are some people who are true bilinguals, truly equally proficient in both languages and like a native language. But it's actually much rarer than I think most people uh, would realize. If we're talking about fluency from what the word really literally means, which is to be able to process things smoothly, so to be able to have smooth conversations with people which are not halting and stutteringly and being able to talk about things, then I would say I'm fluent in probably five to six languages. Korean is a little bit more on the iffy end. I'm probably not, I'm still in that kind of halting a little bit area, but I can have conversations in, uh, in, in six languages now. But I would say at the same time that the, within those languages, there's also ranges in ability. So I would say right now, my, my Chinese is, uh, I would say quite good right now. I'm, I'm able to even give like some, I did some public speaking in China when I was there a couple years ago. Um, I'm able to, you know, converse on most topics, uh, Spanish and, uh, the other European ones. I feel like I'm also decent at my Korean is a little bit weaker. Hmm. And what would you say was the most difficult language to learn? Uh, both Chinese and Korean are probably of similar difficulty. I put a lot more effort into Chinese, which is why my Chinese is better. Mm. Um, I think Asian languages from someone with a European language background tend to be harder. This is not just because um, they are different language families. So uh, Chinese is does not is not at all related to uh, English, whereas French and Spanish are related to English. They're kind of part of the same Indo-European language families. And so that aids in learning a little bit because there's certain grammatical and uh, word choices that tend to be similar. But then also just because languages that originate from Europe have centuries or millennia of contact with each other, there's a lot of borrowed vocabulary, a lot of words that are the same. So one of my best examples of this is that if we're talking about uh, learning Spanish and you have to learn the word for creativity, you will learn it is creatividad, which is 
basically creativity, but instead of T at the end, you say that at the end because that's how they make those um, words in, in Spanish. So that's pretty easy to remember, whereas in Chinese, it is chuang zao xing. So uh, that's going to be a little bit more difficult to remember, and you have to sort of later build that foundation that uh, chuang and zao both mean to kind of make. They're sort of characters that indicate that, and xing is to you know, turn something into a noun, that's sort of a grammatical pattern that you'll learn. But these are sort of little building blocks that maybe you don't have when you start to learn Chinese, and it will make it a little bit more difficult, require a bit more work. The process is sort of the same, but it just means that you just don't have quite the same starting point that you would with other European languages. Interesting. And because you speak so many different languages, well, you know, have a conversation, um, like a decent level of... um fluency i guess how do you maintain your ability to like um remember all the words the vocabulary and so on maintaining languages is not uh not a trivial thing and i think that that difficulty goes up as you learn more so i'll tell a little story because one of the guys that i talk about in my book ultra learning is benny lewis who has learned has learned, and I'm using the past tense there intentionally, uh, probably more than 15 languages. I don't know how many he actively maintains. And I remember when I first met him, uh, and he had already spoken, you know, in the like, you know, probably close to a dozen languages around then. And I remember asking him something about, oh, well, how many languages you could speak? And he made the comment to me that, well, some of them he doesn't maintain. And I always thought that was really funny because I thought, well, the hard thing about learning a language is learning it. And it was only after learning several that I realized actually maintenance is not a joke in terms of the difficulty level as well, just because you have to do it kind of forever. And so if you're maintaining, you know, a dozen languages to be able to have some kind of regular practice on a monthly basis with each of those languages can actually end up being quite a bit of work if you have to do that all the time. And so I know a lot of people that they will learn languages and then they will let them kind of atrophy or deteriorate and then they will relearn them. I tend to try to maintain them as as well as I can. And so one of the goals I had after I finished that project was to practice each of them at least once a week. And the way I did this was with a service called um, italki.com. And you can just get book tutors or find language partners. And I would just do like a half hour lesson. And it wasn't really a lesson. It was just an opportunity to have a half hour conversation in that language so that I could maintain it more easily. Now, I still do that. Um, and I, I would do them less frequently. So recently with this book coming out, I've been quite busy. So I haven't done them quite as recently. So the ones that I'm not practicing as much in my regular life, like let's say Portuguese, I would say is probably is getting a little bit rusty right now, just because it's been several months since I've used it. Um, whereas Chinese, which I used yesterday, for instance, is a little bit more fresh. But the the, the difference is that you kind of always have this sort of slow decay process. Although the more you practice it spread out in time, the longer you will be able to hold it. So I think that it is the case that you will lose some of your fluency, but in the same sense, if you really practiced it in an immersive setting where you're speaking it all the time, there's a, some core kernel of the language that is unlikely to be completely forgotten. So even for languages, even if I don't practice them probably for several years, um, there will be some core elements of the language that won't be practiced. Mm. But what tends to get lost is sort of, you know, oh, what was the word for this? That's the kind of thing that you 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 tend to forget. Like, oh, right, how do you say watermelon in this language? Like, those are the kind of things because they don't come up super frequently. But basic things like how are you and how do you say this and where is this and all that kind of basic sort of meat of the language um, tends to stay pretty stable. So if you are doing a language and you are going to learn one, I do think that planning to maintain it in the long run is is an essential part of that, just because otherwise the default is that you will probably forget most of it. Hmm. And if there was a single tip you would give to someone to who wants to begin learning a language, what would that tip be if there is such a thing? <laughs> There is a tip, and uh, you know it's funny because I'm going to tell you what the tip is, and for the people listening right now who are thinking about learning a language, I'm going to predict right now that 95% of you are going to say, yep, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but it really does work. This is so funny because I'm, I'm going to wait before I tell the advice because I think it's important that I like build up the advice a little bit first. Um, this is something that I feel deep down in my bones. Like this is something that I have learned hard one through experience of both doing it this way and also not doing it this way and doing it this way is what works. It is not as hard as it sounds. If you actually commit to it, it is a lot easier than it actually sounds. It is difficult in the beginning, but 
if you have the right kind of tools for processing it, you can get better at it quite quickly. And uh, it is the right way to learn a language. However, as I said, I know from experience talking to people that many, many people will just not do it. No, I'm not going to do that. And the answer is don't speak English. And so it can be just for half an hour a day. It can be with a certain person. It can be in a certain context. It can be on a particular trip for a set period of time. But this is the strategy. Have some sort of communication situation where you don't speak in English to that person. It's okay to use translators. It's okay to use dictionaries. It's okay to, if that other person speaks English, to say, how do you say, and then say the word in English, and they can translate to you. It's okay to say those things. But the key is to just start having that kernel of actually communicating in the language you're trying to learn. And this is so important because for so many of us, when we're trying to learn a language, that's not what we do. We spend months and months doing books and classes and apps and everything to avoid this exact experience. And what I want to say is that this exact experience is what you want to do if you want to learn a language, at least as the core kernel. I'm not saying books and courses have no place. But if you're not doing this, or if you steadfastly refuse to do this, you are going to really delay your acquisition of learning a language. Hmm. And what would you say you're currently most excited about right now? Oh, with respect to learning or with what, what are we talking about? In general, about? your personal life. What are you most excited oh, about? Um, yeah, well, I have some projects that I'm working on, which I'm not going to share publicly right now. So I know it's <laughs> a little bit of a vague dog of that question, but there are some things I'm very excited about. And people who are uh, subscribed to my vlog will find out uh, in the in the early 2020 why I'm very excited about it, but I will not tell them right right now. <laughs> no, that's that's completely understandable. Yeah, yeah. And um, what would you say is your most proudest achievement so far? Proudest achievement. Hmm. Um, hmm. It sounds, it sounds somewhat arrogant, I think, to talk about the things that I'm very prideful of, of my achievements. I would say the thing that I'm most proud of are times when I was facing the most difficulty, the most frustration, the strongest urge to quit, and I, I persisted and I didn't give up. And so those moments are not necessarily going to be about the scope of my accomplishment, but just that I was able to keep doing it even though it was difficult. So some things that I'm proud of, I can't say my proudest moment, but some things I'm proud of is I'm proud of uh, finishing writing this book because there were many moments where I struggled with writing this book when I was working on it. I uh, had a lot of anxiety and stress about writing this book, and so that was something that I'm proud of. I'm proud of uh, continuing to work on my business. There was a moment uh, when I was working on writing and trying to be a writer full time where I would, had been doing it for about five years and I was failing flat on my face in some big project that I worked on just completely failed. And I was feeling very dispirited in that moment. And I was thinking, you know what, I should give up. And it was sure enough, it was right around the corner. The thing that uh, would turn it around and allow me to do it full time was was there. And then obviously, you know, the projects that I've worked on, um, you know, I'm proud of myself for for sticking through it and, and working on them. But obviously those projects, uh, you know, th these are things that I'm, I'm more proud of when I've uh, persisted in something than necessarily when I've uh, accomplished something that other people find interesting or impressive. Hmm. And you mentioned failures. Um, so what would you say was the biggest failure for you and what was the lesson that you took away from it? Yeah, so I can talk about that story a little bit about... Um, yeah, if you about, don't mind sharing. Yeah, so, and it's funny to talk about failures because I think when we think about failures, we also often think about some sort of finality to it that, oh, I failed at learning a language or I failed at, you know, passing my degree or I failed at learning computer programming. And these are not really accurate. The right way of thinking about it is that you haven't succeeded yet. <laughs> and I know this sounds like, oh, this is just some sort of linguistic hoopla that you're like, you're jumping me through some cliche of, you know, <laughs> failure is just uh, premature success. I'm not trying to say it like that, but I think this story is really illustrative of that, that I had for a long time wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to have my own little small business and I wanted to be a writer. And so I'd been writing for a number of years and working really hard on it. This was when I was in university and I was working on it. All my spare time was devoted to um, building this sort of little business. And there was a period, uh, I think this was back maybe about 2008, where I had written a small ebook and it had gotten a little bit of success. 
not enough to like live off of, but a little bit of success where it was sort of like, oh, maybe this is the uptick for me in what I'm doing. And so I thought, you know what, let's double down. Let's write another little ebook. And then maybe this second ebook will be the, you know, the next level, the stepping stone. And that will finally push me over the threshold to um, being able to earn, which at the time was a quite, you know, not, I wouldn't be able to live off of that amount of money now. But at the time I was thinking $20,000 a year was, was enough for me to do this full time, which is not, not a very large income, especially when you're living in a, an expensive place like Canada. And so I was thinking about this at the time and I, uh, I worked really, really hard. I, I spent months and months and months working on this ebook and then I went and sold it. And I think I sold maybe like eight copies of it and it was devastating. I was so disappointed. And it was also for me kind of like how many people might be feeling when they're dealing with failures that you, it, it you, in that moment, it's not just this one thing that failed. It's what appears to be the string of all the things that you've done that haven't failed that are all accumulating in this moment. And so for me, it felt like, you know, I'm, maybe I'm just not cut out for this, or maybe I don't have what it takes to do this, or maybe I can't figure out how to do this. And it was a real long stretch of, you know, looking back at five years and saying, you know what, maybe this was just a waste of time and, and I was doing the wrong thing. And and in that moment, uh, feeling kind of bad for myself and <laughs> feeling like a complete failure, I just said to myself, well, you know what? I don't have anything better to do. I don't have any other thing that I'd rather do other than this uh, right now. I don't have any other great idea of like, well, I should really have been doing X. There was no X. I, all I had was this idea. So I said, you know what? Well, let's just keep working on it for a little bit longer. And it's so funny because right around the corner, I created a, a little little sort of monthly subscription thing. I think it was like, you know, $12 a month or something, $14 a month uh, for students to, you know, give them some, uh, some studying tips. And it was sort of like a monthly subscription. And this little program that I created ended up being super popular. And it ended up being the thing that allowed me to, you know, not only, um, not only have a successful business, but also enabled me to later do some of these projects like the MIT challenge, like the year without English, like some of these ultra learning projects that got me to this point today. And so the funny thing is, is that in that moment, I was definitely feeling like a failure, but really it was just, you know, the success that I wanted to have was kind of right around the corner. Yeah, no, it's very interesting because like failure always leads to success. And I'm just always just curious to know what, 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 what that was for you. And mm -hmm. also, if you were to have a chat with a 20-year-old uh, Scott, what advice would you give to yourself? Yeah, you know what? Um, that's a very interesting question. And I think I'm not going to give the standard answer, mm -hmm. I think, to that. People are always like, well, I would tell myself X or Y. Because uh, the funny thing is that I was actually writing articles uh, when I was 20. So I've been writing articles for 14 years now. And so if you go on my website, you can read articles that are written by 20-year-old me. So I can read those. So I know very clearly what I was thinking and what I was aiming at. And the truth is, is that I haven't actually changed my opinion so much on a lot of things. Now, obviously, I've changed as a person as I've gotten older. But I'm also hesitant to say that as we get older, we always get wiser. We definitely change. Um, but sometimes the things that I was focused on and working on were also because I was in that phase of my life and I'm at a different phase of my life right now. So one of the things, you know, that people say is they mellow out when they get older. And that's also because when you get older, the things in your life have kind of already happened, right? Like you've already succeeded or didn't succeed at the things that you were trying to succeed. And so of course you're a little bit more mellow about it because a lot of the things that your life was going to be have been decided already. Uh, you know, you already found your spouse or, or you didn't find your spouse or you already, you know, chose a career or you didn't choose a career. And so when I look back to my 20 year old self, I don't think there would be so much advice that I would give that person, but merely just to, you know, keep working hard and, and keep caring about doing things well. And and I think that, uh, you know, I have to be grateful for that person for getting me to where I am now. Hmm. And what does your typical day as a writer entrepreneur look like? So typical day is really hard to say because my days really vary. So for mm. instance, today I'm recording this podcast with you. And before I recorded this podcast with you, I recorded a different podcast with a different guy in the morning. But that doesn't mean that most mornings I wake up and record podcasts. So what I've been doing has been changing a lot depending on what I have to do. So right now with this book just coming out, I have been recording a lot of podcasts. 
when I am not recording a lot of podcasts, when I'm not doing that kind of promotion, then, you know, a day might look like, for instance, when I was writing the book, a day would very typically be, okay, wake up, 8 a.m., go to the coffee shop, avoid procrastinating, start working on this book. And that would either be writing or it would be doing some research that I've sort of set aside that I've got to read these books or read these journal papers. And so this, uh, this process is, I think, quite different day to day. And so I don't have a very consistent routine in terms of what I do every day for work. But what I try to do is I try to um, get my work done in a fairly concentrated burst. That sort of tends to be how I work best. So I try to aim at getting, you know, three to five hours of very concentrated work done in the day. And then the rest of the day is usually lighter stuff, things like having calls, things like having meetings, emails, lighter things. But I feel like if I can get that three to five hours of deep work done, then uh, I'm, I'm quite pleased with that. And what does the three to five hours consist of? Is this just writing or is it um, your creative projects? Like what do you usually do within those? Uh, yeah, usually writing. Uh, yeah. Writing would be the main thing I'm doing. I mean, obviously, if I'm doing one of these ultra learning projects, then uh, I'm probably doing more than three to five hours, but I'm also doing, um, you know, whatever learning activity I'm doing. So I'm studying or I'm practicing or I'm, I'm doing whatever I need to do. So I think that the, the work does change, but usually it's writing. Hmm. Okay, and I'd like to segue into the MIT challenge. So if mm. you were to do once again, what would you do differently? Oh, wow. See, this is the, you're getting me to think back <laughs> at all my, my past uh, situations. And you know what? It's funny. There are things that I would say that I would have liked to have done better about the MIT challenge, but the reason I did them the way I did was because of constraints that were hard to avoid. So one of the things that I might have wished I could have done differently is that uh, the way that I did the project is that I did um, the exams and then I would usually self-grade them by comparing them to the solution key and, you know, following the marking rubric wherever possible, but, you know, where not possible making some deviations. And the obvious sort of critique of that is that, you know, maybe you should have had someone else grade them. Now, the challenge with doing that is that when I was doing the project, I didn't have access to anyone who was in a you know, capacity to grade it better than I did. I mean, I certainly couldn't ask my roommate who doesn't even know what this, these exams are even about yeah. how to grade this because he doesn't even understand what we're covering. Like he doesn't know differential equations. So how is he going to possibly grade that exam? And similarly, you know, that's one of the weaknesses, but also one of the things that I made kind of a trade off because I also didn't want to, you know, spend months trying to contact people at MIT who maybe worked as TAs to maybe grade these exams and have all this back and forth and all this overhead and pay them a bunch of money because the whole idea was that I wanted to do a project that was fairly independent. So that's some an example of a downside of the project, but one that was somewhat deliberate. Another thing that I could say is, um, I don't want to say a downside of the project, but definitely a trade-off is that I wanted to, my goal with the project was to try to benchmark MIT's computer science curriculum. And so in that sense, I was trying to get as close as possible to MIT as my goal, whereas an alternative goal could have been, I want to be the best programmer possibly. And if that had been my goal, I don't think I would have done the MIT challenge the way that I did because a lot of the ways that they teach things in MIT are teaching things that aren't relevant to programming much at all. There are things like, you know, learning advanced calculus is not relevant to most programmers. Um, you know, learning a lot of electrical engineering stuff, not super relevant to most programmers. Uh, I mean, I did stuff involving physics and, and things involving, um, I, I even did like a, I'm going to use air quotes here. You can't see it, but I did an economics minor, which was like sort of like several classes just in economics in there, which again, if I was trying to be a programmer, I might have omitted or replaced those with something else. So I think, uh, again, depending on what your objectives were, I think that um, I would definitely do differently than I did with the actual project. But when I look back at the constraints that I was under and what I was trying to achieve, um, I'm not sure I could do it better than I did. <laughs> so, I mean, if there are flaws in it or things to critique about the project, I will accept those. But uh, I also, when I look back at doing that project, it's it's not clear to me that I could have done anything obviously better that I just made a clear mistake about when I was planning it. Hmm. And I recently finished uh, reading your book, The Ultra Learning. And I'm curious to know, no, how did you come up with the nine principles that you use in the book? 
Uh, that was a long process. So originally there were seven. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so it's not that these nine are exhaustive. What I wanted to do in describing it is that I was faced with a real challenge because what people tend to want is step by step. They want to say, tell me step one, then tell me step two, then tell me step three. And the problem was that the more I investigated this sort of ultra learning phenomenon, it was that this was the opposite of step by step. That the people who were doing this well were pursuing self-directed projects that were like very flexible, that they were, you know, doing a little bit of something, getting some feedback from the environment, doing something else, making adjustments, doing all of this sort of self-monitoring and self-reflective learning. And so the people who are really good at this, you know, to boil down what they did into a step-by-step in my mind would be not only not only sort of misleading, but it would be completely in the other direction. And so what I wanted to do was to give principles because I think principles can be applied to a lot more projects. Admittedly, it does take some intellectual work to really think through the principles, but also to hopefully give people guidance in their own projects. And then above all, my intention with the book was to just introduce people to this possibility, this idea that you could do an ultra learning project. You could take on some sort of challenge to learn something hard on your own and be successful with it. And so the principles, um, as I said, they, they did go through a lot of evolution. Some of the principles stayed very close to what I had originally envisioned when I had uh, made the proposal for the book. Some of the principles changed after I did more research. So one of the principles, which was not a principle before I, I started doing research and became a principle was retrieval. So retrieval is uh, this idea that if you recall something by actually trying to remember it rather than looking at it, that this has really beneficial effects for memory and it's much more effective way to study almost anything that you have to read or watch. And so this was not initially a principle because I had kind of incorrectly lumped it in with, well, retrieval is the same as getting feedback. And so I had a principle called feedback. So I thought it was the same as feedback. Or I thought, you know what, this is the same as directness. This is the same as not having to do much transfer. So I thought they were the same principle. And it's actually interesting because there's actually um, experiments that have been done that show that both of those sort of connections are not like that, that retrieval is independent of that. So for me, doing a lot of the research in cognitive science was how I kind of came up with the framing for a lot of these principles and what sort of really was the backbone of the science behind them. Hmm. And also, I'd like to ask you about audiobooks and books in general. Like, hmm. do you think um, books are better than audiobooks when you when it comes to learning, or like, what what are your kind of what's your kind of perspective on that? Uh, I don't think that that matters too, too much, mm. uh, whether it's an audiobook or a regular book. I do think that they have differences, but the differences are not real deep differences. The differences are just the kind of obvious things that you would know about it. So, for instance, it's a lot harder to take notes with an audiobook and find stuff later. But right. I mean, you would know that, right? So, if you, like for me, for instance, if I'm doing research and I need to quote something and I listen to it in an audiobook, that's kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but that's not something that I think is a real deep psychological principle. Um, I, I think that what matters more than the book is what you do while you're listening or reading and what you do. Uh, to practice or apply the knowledge. I think those are the real things to think about, not so much whether you're listening or reading. I think listening or reading, great. I think there can be some some differences. I think audiobooks, we tend to multitask a little bit more. So maybe it's a little bit harder to focus deeply when you're listening to an audiobook uh, for some people. Um, uh, uh, but at the same time, I think uh, audiobooks are also more portable. You can do them while you're driving, whereas you can't read a book while you're driving. So I don't think that um, if you like audiobooks and you're a real big audiobook fan, I don't think that you should feel bad about that as like that not being quote unquote real reading. Uh, but vice versa, if you really don't like audiobooks, I don't think that there's any particular reason to listen versus to read. I do think that um, that the main thing that you should be thinking about is what you're doing while you're reading or listening. Uh, uh, reading or listening, I'm, I'm doing a spoonerism here, reading or listening because things like thinking about how this applies, thinking about how this connects to your life, thinking about what the author means, I think these are important steps 
to process the information more deeply. I think if you're doing retrieval practice, which means that after you've done a reading session, after you've listened for a bit, you just spend like 30 seconds trying to see what do I remember from what was just said. That's very helpful. Um, and then most importantly, if we're talking about something that you really want to master, this isn't just something you're listening to for fun, but something you really want to sink your teeth into, then you need to have some kind of practice so that it's not just you know, you're not just listening to a book about how to program, you're actually writing a computer program, you're not just reading a book about, you know, how to manage a company, you're actually working on applying those ideas to your leadership style. So these are things that are often missed, but I don't think that they matter too much based on the format. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think reading is a crucial skill to have. And I'm curious to know, like, how do you personally approach reading a book? Uh, so it depends on the book that I'm trying right. to read. I would say that generally speaking, uh, my goal with reading is to increase the volume of books I read rather than to read particularly intensively. But that being said, if I'm reading a book for a class, I will approach it differently than if I'm reading a, a book for fun. So when I'm reading, most of the books I'm reading these days are for fun or they may tangentially work into something that I'm gonna write about, but not explicitly. It's not like I'm doing research, it's just, well, I'm reading this book and maybe some of those ideas will impact my writing. And so for that kind of reading, my goal is to just reduce the barriers and just read more books. So I do a lot of things like, for instance, I never have a goal to, I never force myself to finish a book so I would say that at any given moment, I have maybe about a dozen books that I'm in various stages of reading. And so whenever I get bored with it, I just read something different. And I don't think there's anything bad with that. And I so I have many, many books that I've read partially. Um, I've read some of them. Um, and I think that, you know, that's often good because for a lot of books, you get the gist of the book after a couple chapters and then there, it stops being new it's you've kind of gotten the meat of the ideas uh, hopefully my book is not one of those but there are definitely books that are like that and there are also a lot of books that you know they're very dense and difficult so you read them in bite-sized pieces because you know you just can't push yourself to read through a huge scientific textbook in one go and so i when i'm doing reading for leisure i do it that way uh, when I'm doing reading for research, then I have a very crystal clear idea in my mind of what I'm looking for. I, I tend to highlight if it's a Kindle just because then I can um, more, more easily find highlighted passages later. Um, I, if I'm doing reading for uh, – I, I had a habit of when I was doing reading for research for my book – of doing retrieval practice. So after I would read a journal article, I'd have a few sheets of loose leaf in the binder that I printed it out onto. And I would just jot down everything that I can recall from the article. And that's helpful for remembering it for the specific purpose of remembering it long enough to be able to possibly integrate it into the chapter I was writing on a book. And if I do articles and I'm doing research, I do something similar. Um, I, these days I've been taking a little bit more elaborate notes just because I want to have a bit better track of things that I'm reading for my writing purposes. So this is very much because I'm a writer as opposed to just someone who's reading things for interest sake. So I'm, I'm using Evernote and, and trying to develop a, a new system for tagging, keeping track of things. But this is very much to sort of funnel into my writing process as opposed to, you know, generally this is how I would read all books. And how did you how did you actually learn how to learn yourself? Like what resources did you use? What books did you use to learn how to learn? Well, uh, starting out, so I had had kind of a, a windy journey through the process of learning techniques. So starting out, I think I was introduced to how a lot of people do. I was introduced to mnemonics. Um, I don't remember my first resource with mnemonics, but I learned about the link and the peg method and then later some uh, other techniques such as the memory palace or, or various other mnemonic techniques. And that was very interesting in the beginning. Um, and that sort of led me to kind of work on some of my own experiments and my own ideas about learning which I talk about uh, before in my early days of writing my blog. These days, I'm less of a fan of mnemonics, not because I don't think that they don't work, but because I think they have much narrower utility than a lot of the proponents suggest. So a lot of people think mnemonics are the way to learn everything, and I really think they're really good for some problems, but most of the things that we want to get good at just don't obviously fit into the kind of paradigm that you use for, for mnemonics. And then I would say that uh, a lot of the... Um, research into learning kind of had two threads. One thread was looking at the 
sort of case studies or histories of people who were successful learners. And that's a lot of my book. I, I kind of document some of those early inspirations. And then also digging as I got more into it, digging more into the cognitive science. So the science of memory, the science of attention, the science of focus and feedback and, you know, things like deliberate practice. And so that sort of became an increasingly large influence until, you know, this book that I wrote, um, Ultra Learning, I, I would say I mostly was deriving my concepts and ideas from this sort of cognitive science literature, as opposed to just, you know, practical techniques that I've seen people using. And I'd like to ask you this as well. Um, what advice would you give to an aspiring author or entrepreneur? Someone who wants to begin start in that field, but what advice would you give to those people? Well, author and entrepreneur are not necessarily uh, overlapping sets. No, that, that <laughs> they're, is true. Yeah. You can be you can be an author and not an entrepreneur, and an entrepreneur and not an author. And honestly, even though there are people who are both, uh, I think people often entrepreneurs often want to be. Uh, often want to be authors when they shouldn't. <laughs> so I think if you want to write a book, I think you have to really, really want to write a book. And I think you have to really want to write a book for writing a book's sake and not so much because you want to be uh, celebrated as an author or make a lot of money because writing a book is not a really good vehicle for doing either of those things. I think it's usually there's other ways that you can uh, um, so if your only goal is that you want to be seen as being an author or you want to make a bunch of money with a best-selling book, I think those are definitely the wrong motivations to have for going into that. But if we're talking about being a writer online, uh, which is often sort of the precursor to either of those things, uh, my general advice is uh, – so my general advice to anyone who's aspiring as a writer is threefold. So step one, you need to write a lot. Step two, you need to uh, care about writing well. And it's very important that step two come after step one. So a lot of people care about writing well when they still haven't written a lot. And and then they kind of sabotage themselves because they don't end up doing much writing. So I, usually a good threshold for me is write your first hundred articles before you even think about writing well. Uh, just get them out of the way. And then after you care about writing well, my third step would be care enough about writing well to spend, you know, a couple months focusing on some small aspect of your writing to improve. And that's sort of the final stage that will just take you the rest of your life to get good at. But that's a very general outline. But I think if you can follow those steps and you are dedicated and you work hard, you will become a, a successful writer. Thank you for that. And um, what was your favorite part of writing a book or just writing in general? What is your favorite part of being an author? Mm -hmm favorite part of being an author. I think my favorite part of writing in general, and this is true of also writing books, is to talk to people who the writing has impacted their life. And the reason I got into writing was because writing had an impact on my life. And I think that that's something that even as a writer is, is very hard to feel um, because when you write, I'm writing things at home and I'm by myself. And I can imagine the people reading them, but I'm not there. I'm 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 at my home writing the articles. And so it's often only, you know, a couple of years later where someone will email me, "Hey, this article encouraged me to do X and it changed my life or it had some big impact on me." And I know what that feels like because I have read articles that have had a big impact on my life and I've read writing that has changed how I think and how I behave and how I do things. And so, you know, I think that is really the core motivation I have as a writer is to Try to create that kind of writing for other people. And there's obviously some parts that aren't so good. And I'm curious to know what that is for you. Like what's, what's, uh, what's, you know, what's bad about being a writer? What's bad about being a writer? Yeah. Well, writing is hard. I think, um, you know, even now having found some success with it, uh, it's definitely not the easiest profession to be in. I, you know, the grass is greener. So I, I can say that there's also some perks of being a writer, but um, becoming a writer and being able to earn a living as a writer is not a trivially easy profession. So I think you have to really want to do it and you have to really want to work hard and know that you're going to have to work your ass off constantly to be able to, to make a living at it. Whereas there's a lot of other professions that if your goal was just to have a comfortable life, I don't know whether writing would be the thing that I would choose as my, as my profession. I might choose writing to get good at writing as a as a skill to have uh, while I'm also, you know, an engineer or programmer or some other profession that's maybe a little bit easier. But um, <clears throat> writing is just challenging just because most people who are writers do not make a living off their writing. And those who do often do so with considerable struggle. But I would say that 
that's a challenge of being writing. And then I would say also the challenge of being writing is just that if you are successful with it, that your work is exposed to a large audience. And so I think that critical voice that you have can also be amplified by the voices of other people who are critical or those voices in your head that, you know, you don't like your writing and are critical of it. And so this, that sort of um, fear, I guess you could say, of being sort of exposed to so many people and having your ideas torn apart by other people is definitely something that can um, uh, weigh on you as, as you're writing or as, as really as you're creating anything. And in this current digital information age, there's so much information out there. There's so much skills you can learn. And I'm curious to know, like, what, what are your thoughts on, like, what are the most important skills to learn uh, currently right now? Uh, I think that the answer of which skills you should learn is based on two things. One, the opportunities you want to pursue. And two, the things that you're interested in. And so I don't actually believe in the case that, well, there's X skills that everyone should learn. Rather, I think we need to live in a world where all sorts of people are learning all sorts of different skills because almost any skill is valuable in some context. Now, there are some skills that I think are just generally more lucrative these days. I think, uh, I think being a, you know, good with computers or technical skills is in demand. A lot of people struggle with that. And, you know, with the digital age that we're in, you know, being able to either program or work with software or have some of these skills is very valuable. But I also don't want to be the person that says everyone should learn coding. I don't think everyone should learn anything. I think that the things that you should learn, maybe beyond like literacy and the things that you learn in grade school, the kind of advanced skills that we're talking about, I think that they have to come from a place of, wouldn't it be cool if I could do this or wouldn't I like to have that job or wouldn't I like to have that career? And I think that motivation is very personal and I think it needs to be adaptive to what situation you find yourself in, what kinds of skills you already have. I mean, no one's a blank slate. You're not starting from nowhere. You're always starting from some position. So, you know, if you already, let's say, are an engineer and you decide you want to become a software developer, like that maybe is a more logical transition than if you've spent 35 years working in journalism and that's just not the direction that you want to go with your career. So I don't think that there's must-learn skills, but I think there are many, many, many skills that uh, people ought to learn. And let's just say someone is trying to excel into their career, like they're trying to progress, move up the ladder, whatever, but there's a bit of a knowledge gap. What advice would you give to someone who wants to like uh, conquer that and actually excel within the career? So to excel in your career, I think there's two good useful tips I can give. So one of them is what I call the expert interview method, which is to find people two to three steps ahead of you in your career. And that two to three steps is very important. Because uh, I've given this advice to people before. I've taught courses where I've given this advice to people. And sometimes people will pick people who are wildly inappropriate <laughs> to get this advice from. So, for instance, I remember um, one of our early students that we gave this advice to said, okay, I'm going to go out and talk to Tim Ferriss. Well, I don't know if you guys know who Tim Ferriss is, but he's, he's pretty famous as an author and blogger. And this guy was not even trying to be an author, or blogger, or podcaster. He was just trying to... You know, I don't know what he was doing at that time, but he was like maybe a software engineer or something. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is not the person to talk to. Tim Ferriss has no idea what you should be doing uh, with your career. The person that you should talk to is the person who has the career you want, that has the job that's just a couple steps ahead of you, that is a little bit advanced because they are close enough to you right now that they can offer you useful advice. And also because they've been through kind of the transition of where you are to where they are now. And you can often ask them either directly for advice of what things do you think I should get good at, what things should I focus on, but you can also talk to them and ask them what their career trajectory is, and that can give you hints about what skills are important. So if you talk to someone and you say, oh, yeah, well, first I was a manager at such and such for like six years, and then you can see, okay, what kinds of things did they get good at at that time? What kind of track record did they build? What kinds of uh, assets did they acquire in that time period? in order for them to have that later success. And so I think mapping out what the career trajectory really looks like is sort of an essential process. And so for a lot of people, they're just doing their job every day and just hoping for a promotion. Whereas I think if you really map out how does success work in your field, what are the things that are driving people up the ladder? What are things that are driving people to promotions and higher salaries? Um, and this is very specific to where you work. You know, I had a conversation with a guy who, was working for Dell. And he was saying that in Dell, 
um, at least in his department, the key metric that was driving promotions and, and stuff was how much revenue you generated for the company. And he was saying that he talked to someone who was higher up and they said that the difference between someone getting this coveted position was that so-and-so had generated, let's say, you know, $3.2 million in sales and this other person had generated $3.4 million. And so the person who made $3.4 was the person who moved up. Now, this isn't to say that this is how it works in your field. It may not be that way, but just that until he went around and asked, until he had had these interviews and had these kinds of discussions with people, he wasn't aware that this is how they were framing success and how they were being evaluated. And so it's, it really does vary from profession. And so you need to figure out exactly how it works for your career and not just look at generalized principles of success like, what does Tim Ferriss think I should be doing with my career? Uh, and the second piece of advice I would have is just acquire more skills. So even if you're not sure exactly which skills you should acquire, there's probably a dozen or more things that are plausibly helpful. Things like, well, if I were good at this, this would probably be helpful. And I do think if you can have this expert interview method, you can narrow it down. But if you just get in your head the idea of constantly learning new things, constantly mastering new skills, constantly adding new adjacent tools to your toolkit, this will make you generally more useful, even if it's not clear exactly which ones are the best thing to learn right now. So ultra learning and this sort of philosophy of continuous learning, I think, is important regardless. Thank you for that. Those are very good tips. <laughs> and when you feel overwhelmed, or just unfocused in general, um, how do you tend to deal with that? So I think that we feel overwhelmed because we're thinking at the wrong scope. So if you ever feel overwhelmed in life, it's because what you're thinking about is too big for you to actually translate into some concrete action right now. Or you can think of a concrete action, but that concrete action is disconnected from the thing that you're thinking about. So the best way to avoid feeling overwhelmed is to reduce the scope. So if we're talking about at the project level, that's taking I want to learn French to I want to learn enough that I can have a five minute back and forth conversation with a waiter in Paris. Now that's concrete. Now I can start learning, whereas becoming fluent in French seems too big, too impossible. But on the productivity level, that's very important, too, that, you know, you shouldn't be just trying to say, OK, here's all the things that I want to accomplish in the next year. You should be saying, what things do I need to do this month? What things do I need to do this week? What things do I need to do today? What things do I need to do in the next 35 minutes in order to move forward in my goal? And if you're not breaking things down right. to that level, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. But on the other hand, if you just have your schedule and you know what you have to be doing right now and it's just one thing, most people can do one thing if they know what they have to do right now. And then just focus on that one thing. Right. And then one thing becomes a second thing. You're really only ever doing one thing at a time. So the whole feeling of overwhelm is just, it's purely in your head. It's not actually in reality because you're never doing more than one thing. I'm only doing this podcast with you right now. Yeah, there's a lot of other stuff going on in my life, but right now I'm just doing this podcast. And so when you are listening to this right now, think about what you're doing in your life. And the key to not being overwhelmed is to just figure out what is the next step that you got to put your foot forward on. And the more you can... Keep your attention on those things and have those things be in a system so that they are connected to your long-term goals, the less likely you are to panic and feel overwhelmed. And is that the personal approach you take uh, personally? Yes, yeah, of mm, course. Okay, thank you for that. And how do you choose to book a read? Um, like, How do you know if uh, if I need to choose this book to read? Um, like, Do you have certain criteria that you go through or... Do you just pick up um, the book and just read yeah, it? Yeah, so again, we've got to go back to the purpose. What is the purpose of reading the book? So for me, one of my goals with reading books is to just read lots of books hmm. that might be about interesting things, uh, either because I might want to write about it or just because I like learning about lots of different things. Uh, whereas, so I approach that kind of reading very differently from I need to buy a book to do X or I need to buy a book because I'm trying to solve a certain particular problem in my life. Those kind of books I approach differently. If I'm talking about the first kind of books, then as I've already mentioned, my main goal is trying to reduce barriers to reading a lot. And so what I'll do is um, I will just be very, very loose and fast with buying books. Uh, I mean, I now am very comfortable budgeting, uh, you know, more money to buying more books. But if you are, you know, in this position and you don't feel like you can just throw away money on books, then you could do the same approach with taking books out from the library. And so the idea here is just have lots of books, 
don't hesitate about getting new books. Don't hesitate about starting new books. Don't hesitate about like anything that's getting you to read more you should do. And so I think a lot of people have guilt about this that they're like, oh no, I, I have all these books that I haven't finished and I feel so bad about it. Don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with starting a new book. There's nothing wrong with reading 30 pages into a book and putting it down because it didn't interest you. And so I think for me, it's all about how do I maximize the total amount of books I read? And the reason that I think about it this way is that Let's say you have 100 books at your house and, you know, you've successfully read 99 of them and you can feel so proud because you've read, you know, almost all of the books that you've ever bought. Whereas in reality, there's hundreds of thousands of books. There's more books than you're ever going to read in a lifetime. There's more ideas than you're ever going to explore in a lifetime. And so from my perspective is that for this kind of reading, it's not you know, how many books did you finish? It's not, um, you know, did you, what percentage of books did you finish, but just how much reading did you do? Did you get a lot of reading done or not? And so for me, I'd much rather have, you know, 600 partially finished books than, you know, the 60 books that I definitely finished from cover to cover. And I pushed myself through it, even though, you know, I procrastinated a lot and didn't do uh, reading that often. Right. Yeah, because I think like a lot of times there's like a one single concept in a book. And like once you get that, you can kind of move on to another book. Like this is something I recently started doing as well. Just, you know, pick a book. And if I'm no longer interested in it, move on. This yeah. wasn't the case with your book. Oh, I was yeah. glued to your book. Oh, but, um... thank you. But I think you're absolutely right. A lot of books are, um, they really should have been blog posts, but they yeah. were turned into a book. Uh, I won't name any books in particular, <laughs> but you know which books I'm talking about. Yeah. The book is one idea. And you were kind of convinced after the first chapter and then the rest was just just repetitively saying the same thing in different ways for the rest of the book. Um, not all books are like this. And I mean, there's also some value in repetition, too. So I'm not even to say that if you're reading a book that is like that, that there's anything wrong with finishing that book. I think, you know, a lot of people like me, they will or a lot of people will ask me things like, well, you know, what is the one book I should read on X? And I kind of say, that's totally the wrong way to think about it. It is, what is, how many books can I read on X? And so if you're talking about like getting in shape or we're talking about managing your money or we're talking about having better habits or books like mine about learning, you know, don't read one book, read like 15 different books. And, and, and it's better to read 15 different books part way through and get a bunch of different ideas, in my opinion, than it is to, you know, okay, make sure I picked the right book and that I, you know, really worked through this book. You know, sometimes it takes getting a couple books to find one that really resonates with you or, or one that is really addressing your specific issues. Right, yeah, I agree with that so much because, like, there's so much different perspectives in books, like, from different authors. And, like, one book mightn't necessarily stick with you, but if you had read several ones, you're going to see the same ideas and eventually it'll kind of stick in your head. And I'm also mm. curious to know, what are the one to three books that have influenced your life the most uh, or your personal approach to life? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You see, this is <laughs> an impossible question. question. No, it's an impossible question because I just said that there's no one book. There's 15 that, books. That so is, really, yeah. the great, great answer to that question is like 300 books. I'll list a few books off the top of my head. These are not my top three books. There's just books I like. Right. Uh, one of my favorite books that I read last year was called The Enigma of Reason. Uh, I'm listing it also because I almost guarantee that very few people listening to this have ever even heard of this book. I love this book. It is a it is a deep book. It is not an easy book, but I think it is a book that had really profound implications in how I think about thinking, how I think about ideas, how I think about, you know, what it is to be a human being. And uh, it seems like it's at first on a fairly narrow topic, which is um, how does human reasoning work? But I think it is really revelatory in terms of its capacity to change how you think about yourself as a person. Uh, another book that I also really like is uh, Cal Newport's Deep Work. I think that's probably his best book. Uh, really good book for productivity. And another book I would recommend by my friend who wrote the foreword of my book, so I'll, I'll, give, him, I'll give him this, is uh, James Clear's Atomic Habits. So those last two books are a little bit uh, lighter books in the more self-improvement genre. And Atomic Habits is a great book. I, I really found it uh, a good introduction to that thing. So I would go with those three books as possible books. But yes, there are many, 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 many books you should read. Right. Okay. And when you think of the word successful, who comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Hmm. You know what? I think this is a very interesting question. I'm going to answer it in a different way. Instead of who think comes to mind when I think successful, I think what we mean by success is something that I think 
is a very personal question. I think it's one that is worth analyzing and thinking about because society gives us a lot of defaults about what success is. And sometimes those societal visions of success uh, are not actually very helpful for you to live your life well. And I think many of us, I think particularly if you have some ambitions in life, get into a trap where we keep pursuing what is in the direction of success for us. So, you know, we keep going up that ladder of promotions. We keep trying to make more money. We keep trying to get more respect and esteem and achievement. And we don't really think about what we want in our lives, how we want to live, what we want our lives to be about. And as a result, we end up pursuing the dreams of success of other people and not the ones of our own. And so for me, when I think about what is core to my personal vision of success is definitely related to learning and mastery and to exploring new ideas and experiences about the world. And so the people that I think resonate with this vision of mine strongly are people like Richard Feynman, people like Kevin Kelly, people who really pursued eclectic interests and maybe, you know, they had great accomplishments, but they were also very driven by this sort of personal pursuit of curiosity and mastery. But that's my vision of success, and it maybe isn't yours. And so I think it's very important to really think about that question and not just be spoon-fed an answer from someone else. Right. Yeah. And in the last five years, uh, what would you say was a new belief, a behavior maybe, or a habit that has most improved your, your life, your personal life? In the last how many years did you in say? In the last five years. Last five years. Hmm. So, again, I'm dodging the question a little bit, but I think uh, the ideas of Enigma of Reason, that book that I mentioned, have had probably the biggest shift of my thinking in the last five years. I would say in the sort of long span of my life, being just introduced to self-improvement, being introduced to this idea that we can make our lives better through a systematic approach of changing our habits of you know, mastery of these kinds of processes have had profound impact on my life. But I would say in the last, yeah, last five years, this that this book has definitely been one that has stuck with me and, and occupied my thoughts a lot. Right. That's my next book to read. <laughs> <laughs> and what advice would you give to a smart, driven college student who's about to enter the real world and just wants to succeed in general? And what advice should they ignore, perhaps? Mm, okay. So one thing I would definitely say that no one does for some reason, but I think is super important. And it's probably important to do even before you pick your major but I mean, after you pick your major, I think it's still useful, is uh, go talk to people who uh, are actually working in the field. I don't know why college students don't do this, but it just, to me, it's like very essential. And I think there's two real big benefits of it. So the first big benefit of talking to people in the field is that you want to learn how the field actually works. So school is nothing like the real world in terms of how success works, how people evaluate things. And so very often people will pick a subject because they like how it is in school, but that doesn't mean that they'll like how it is in their career. So definitely before you pick a field, you should talk to people, see what the work is like, ask if you can show up for a day and see what they're doing at the office. Like this is something that I think is valuable. And the second reason is that it starts building connections and shows you as someone who is ambitious, someone who is eager to work and figure out things. Most people are not like that. And so you will definitely stand out as a sort of a keen student, if you are like this, if you are showing up, you know, just, well, I just want a job and I just want to get paid. That's a lot of people and employers are looking for the people who are, you know, they're very interested in doing the work well and improving their craft and mastery. And so I think this is definitely a step that I would not wait until graduation to pursue as a student. Hmm. And what would you say is the most worthwhile investment that you ever made? And this investment might be of your money, your time, energy, whatever. Mm. most worthwhile investment. I mean, I've done a lot of things that I think are very worthwhile investments. I think, I think the most worthwhile investment in terms of the highest return for the smallest amount of um, input was creating a kind of productivity system. So there's lots of them out there. I would recommend uh, getting things done is a really good starting book for that. I, do, I don't use a system that's exactly like getting things done, but it's a good starting point. And I, the reason why I think having a productivity system is so valuable is because for a lot of us, we're just sort of shooting from the hip when we're living our lives. We're just working on this. Okay, this is coming up. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to do this. 
And a productivity system is just, let's get all of that organized. Let's get all the goals that we have, all the projects we're working on, and break them down into our daily actions. And I mean, there's a lot more to success and to achievement than just having a system in place, but just taking the mental task of here's all the things that I'm trying to accomplish, and this is how that impacts what I should be doing you know, Tuesday morning, I think is just so valuable. And yet most people don't have a system like that. Thank you for that. Um, I just have one more question for you. So mm -hmm. let's just say there's a billboard and everybody could see this billboard. So if people look up in the sky, oh, I see this billboard and you could display a message. Uh, what message would you put on that billboard? Oh, wow. hmm. On a billboard. Uh, these are these are deep questions that I don't have easy answers to. I would say, hmm, you know what? Again, I don't think it's going to work exactly for the billboard analogy, but I think uh, a question that I think is always is very simple and it's always a starting point for things for me. And I think if you just if you just could get in the habit of asking yourself this question more in your life, it would take you to very interesting places and and cause you to have more success. And the question would just be why. You know, those little kids that just say, why, why, why? And it's kind of annoying. And, and at some point it bottoms out and the parents can't answer the kid. And we kind of are dismissive of that and just say, oh, I'll just do it. Don't ask why. But I think if you just ask why about more things, it will just take you in places that uh, that you wouldn't have known when you started. Hmm. Thank you for that. And um, before we finish up, is there anything you would like to say to the listeners? Um, well, I obviously I think that uh, if you get a chance to check out my book Ultra Learning, I think you'll really enjoy it. And uh, if you want to read some of my articles, I have lots of articles about many of the topics that we've been talking about here on the podcast. Uh, really, over thirteen hundred articles right now at scotthyoung.com. That's S C O T T H Y O U N G dot com. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for listening. Great. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. It was a very interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, it'd be pretty cool if you shared it with your friends or anyone else who you think would benefit from it. You can find all the show notes by going to the website chasingpassion.e. That is chasingpassion.e. Thank you for listening today and I hope you enjoyed the episode.